Our first reading today is from the novel Arcadia by Lauren Groff. They sit here in the darkness, trusting that the coffee will be hot and unpoisoned, that no raging madman will come in with a gun or bomb. It leaves him breathless at times how much faith people put in one another. So fragile, the social contract. We will all stand by the rules, move with care and gentleness, invest in the infrastructure, agree with the penalties of failure. That this man driving his truck down the street won't on a whim angle into the plate glass and end things. That the president won't let his hand hover over the red button and in a moment of rage or weakness explode the world. The invisible tissue of civilization, so thin, so easily rendable. It's a miracle that it exists at all. Our second reading is from the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead from his lectures del delivered at um, Trinity College, The Concept of Nature. The aim of science is to seek the simplest explanations of complex facts. We are apt to fall into the error of thinking that the facts are simple because simplicity is the goal of our quest. The guiding motto in the life of every natural philosopher should be, seek simplicity and distrust it. The question that forms my title today, what can we trust, was a question box question, or rather, I misunderstood the question box question from the service about a month ago and answered the question, whom can we trust? How do we know whom we can trust? Um, so I checked back with the questioner, who is my daughter, and said, did I answer your question? And she said, well, that was an interesting answer, but what I really want to know is what can we trust? Just goes to show that the question box is just one exchange in uh, what ought to be a dialogue. And I always want to hear back whether I have indeed answered your question or what other thoughts, um, the things I have said inspire in you. So there's a lot of ways to answer this question, what can we trust? And this may or may not be answering her question also, but it is something that has been much on my mind and perhaps on yours as well. So I hope that this is helpful to you all. This question of how do we know what we can trust? It's always been a problem. It's always been a question for us, but it seems to be getting a lot of emphasis nowadays. We've talked a lot in our media, in our conversations, in our own minds about how much harder it seems to be to, to know what we can trust, to know what sources of information and knowledge in particular are trustworthy, and to reach some sort of agreement, general agreement, if not absolute consensus on that question. People get their information nowadays from so many sources that we end up waving conflicting facts at one another. For example, a solid 20% of people report that they get a lot of their news from social media. Now, we may take some hope in the fact that they don't 
have a high level of trust in that information. Nevertheless, that is where we are getting um, much of our news. And so we don't always know whether that news is coming from actual journalists with their training and accountability. Also in our time, we've become enamored of an idea that's based in physics of observer-dependent reality. Now, this is, um, this is an idea that applies to the quantum level, and yet it's kind of moved into the popular understanding as the idea that reality depends entirely on who is observing and what their, um, their biases are. That calls into doubt the very sources of information on which we used to depend. And along with that comes, over the last mm, several decades, the growth of postmodernism, which does bring, in appropriate ways, that doubt into the world of sociology, anthropology, politics, literature, the whole way we relate to each other and the facts that we encounter, calling into doubt things that used to be considered solid by saying, you know, each speaker has a bias, and certain biases are confirmed by, by uh, the dominant class, by the dominant race or gender in a particular place. There's, there's power behind what we claim to be true. It's not just a, a snapshot of objective reality. So along with that has come a whole project of decolonialization, understanding that the people on the margins, the people who were oppressed may have a very different perspective than the one that got written in the history books and passed down to us as fact. We've also become more aware of the cognitive processes that favor our own biases and make it difficult to know even when we are ourselves to be trusted. All of this adds up to a very difficult question of how to trust what is before us, how to know what is trustworthy, even in regard to facts. As the saying goes, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. But how do we even determine which are simply our own facts and which are the facts? when there are so many sources, so many biases, so much competition. Well, these are some modern expressions of this development. Some of the developments are good ones. Some are not so good and all make the picture complex. But the problem of knowing what we can trust, that is an old, old problem. People have been addressing it for a long time. The Buddha said, be ye lamps unto yourselves. Trust to yourselves as to the only lamp. And Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. And ultimately, it's true. We have to trust ourselves because everything outside us comes through this filter. If we put our trust in a tradition, it's because we have decided that the tradition merits our trust. If we trust a news source, it is because we have decided it fits with what we know to be true. Even those who turn their fate over to God have to decide 
for themselves to what kind of a God they can entrust their lives and their futures. We test these sources and resources against what we know. So let me rephrase our original question. How can we know that what we know to be true is true? Again, for a very, very long time, people have asked this question. If you want to know the philosopher's term for it, it is epistemology, the study of the nature of knowledge, especially the limits of knowledge and how we know whether knowledge is valid. And all these difficulties that I've described in knowing what we can know reliably is called the epistemological wound, that sense of the insecurity, that the knowledge that we would like to rest on firmly is like earthquake country, and we can't be sure that it won't crumble under us. But looking to ancient sources, I found something fascinating. In the Vedas, this is thousands of your um, old um, wisdom, this question was pondered, and in one Veda, the writer recorded four means of attaining correct knowledge. One was, uh, is translated as tradition or scripture. One as communication by somebody who is expert or also a kind of tradition. One is perception and one is reasoning. So the tradition that comes down to us in forms such as scripture, tradition that comes down to us as other people, our own perception and our own reasoning. This was startling to discover this from halfway around the world and thousands of years ago, because it sounded a lot like something I had encountered in seminary as the Wesleyan quadrilateral that is named not after any universities, but after their uh, founder and honoree, John Wesley, who founded Methodism. John Wesley said in this question of how do we know what to believe, what to trust, we should rest on four things. Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. The idea being that we cannot have reasonable assurance of something unless we have experienced it personally. Now, we might not have all of these things in any one case, but together, like a table on four legs, they are solid. And how fascinating that as far as I know, Wesley did not read Vedic literature, and yet here are humans coming up with this same idea. You know, here are things you can do to know that what you, tr what you believe and what you accept as true is likely true tradition in the form of people's writings and practices, tradition in the form of people's expertise, perception, and your own reason. This gives me some hope that we are coming up with when in a way is what in a more modern and Unitarian Universalist tradition might be called pragmatism. That's pragmatism with a capital P, the philosophical tradition. The idea that we may not be able to get down to absolute certain knowledge, even of the most simple thing, that I am here 
And this chalice that I think I feel under my fingertips really is here as well. But that we can get some strong assurance if we apply several methods. Because as the Buddha recognized, as Emerson restated, we are the final arbiters of what we will believe. And so we need to examine things carefully. So I'd like to look at some of the problems we encounter as we do, and maybe they'll be familiar to you from inside yourself or from conversations you have had. One of the problems we encounter when we wonder and explore what is worthy of our trust, what can we truly know and say, okay, I'm going to go with this as an authority, is that if we're moderately intelligent and questioning, we soon discover that there is no way to be 100% sure of anything, even simple physical facts, much less the true reporting, say, of a controversial event in the news. And oftentimes when we make this discovery that there's no way to be 100% absolutely positively sure, we we respond by beginning to treat all information as unverifiable and as equally unverifiable. There's a corrective to this. Give up on certainty. Stop worrying about what you can trust absolutely and recognize that we, we trust things contingently. That is, it's partial, it's incomplete, it's subject to change, it's formed by our own biases and understanding and lack thereof. And that there are degrees of verifiability. And so that allows us to aim for a reasonable standard. Does it match up with the things that we have learned in the past? Does it match with our reason and experience? Okay, then that seems fairly verifiable. It doesn't need to be 100% certain. Philosophers call this fallibilism rather than skepticism. Instead of radically doubting every single thing, we just keep in mind always that we and everybody and everything we know makes mistakes and gets things wrong. Another thing that we may encounter when we start to inquire into this question of what we can trust is this teaching from the Buddha and from Emerson and so many others, especially in this individualistic culture of ours, the realization that we have to trust ourselves. This can cause us to treat all facts as if they're opinions, as if each person has their own reality and they don't need to be in conversation with each other or be changed by anybody else. I had an experience recently online when I was speaking with somebody of very different political persuasion than myself on a website of a news source that's very different politically than my general take on things. And um, I made some uh, assertion um, of opinion and a respondent said, fact check, that's incorrect. I was confused because there wasn't any citation listed. So I said, what fact checker do you use? I think you forgot to include the website there. Well, that's not what he meant by a fact check, because his response to that was, think for yourself. 
All right, so you shouldn't need a fact checker because you should think for yourself. Well, that was hard to argue with. I think that we should think for ourselves when it comes to how we reach our conclusions and what opinions we form. But when it comes to facts, I'm not always capable of, well, I can think for myself, but I can't find out the facts for myself. We can't be experts on virology, foreign policy, statistics, all the kinds of things that we need to have an informed opinion on in order to be responsible citizens, in order to make a decision, like whether to get a vaccine, for example. So the corrective to this, I think, this corrective to this making everything about whatever you think is the truth is check your sources, including yourself. If you apply humi humility and an openness to change, a willingness you're, that, to know that you're not an expert on everything, then you can take that wise teaching from so many people for what it is, just a reminder that we are the filter through which all of our information comes. Another piece of trouble that we can get into as we're trying to find out what to trust is that we appeal to a trusted authority. That might be the Bible, it might be the New York Times. And once we start to trust an authority, we can go too far. We can trust them even when they lead us astray. We can stop looking for whether they are leading us astray because all ends with that authority. And the corrective to that is exactly what Wesley and the Vedic masters long before him uh, gave us. Don't depend just on that authority. Tradition may carry much authority. Uh, wise people may carry much, much authority with us. People who have a track record, like your favorite news source. But look also to reason. Look to experience. Is there a mismatch? Keep holding that trust lightly. And another thing that we can get into trouble with in this search is that when we discover that our usual sources are sometimes wrong, that they are fallible, that they might even be dishonest sometimes, that they might be corrupted, we can abandon them entirely. And that is also a problem because again, we cannot be experts on everything. We can't fall back only on our own common sense, which just can't inform us of everything that we need to know. We need to have others that we can trust, even though that trust has to be provisional. I encountered this reason recently with a, a writer I generally um, respect named Michael Zimmerman. He's the organizer of something called the, um, the clergy um, uh, evolution project, reaches out to communities of faith to talk about evolution and, and why that that is compatible with religion. Still a very important argument to be made here in our country. Well, he, he uh, deviated from his usual in a recent letter to all of his um, followers to say that due to his, his deep doubt um, of his ability to trust, all of our ability to trust the Centers for Disease Control, the Food and Drug Administration, he would not be getting a COVID vaccine when it was released. Well, he talked about this for a bit and not um, surprisingly got quite a lot of backlash, backlash, including he got some response from people high up in the government who work exactly in this area of public health. 
Now his doubts were, were, very, um, were very important and, and had good reasons behind them. Uh, I'm glad he was honest about them and I, I share them. Um, the Centers for Disease Control has proved to be um, corruptible. The work of its many staff has been overridden um, by political appointees. Politics are running, is, are running science right now. So how can we trust the information that's coming out? But I think that his response was an overreaction. This may change when we have a different administration. This may change if we all push back and say, we really need the CDC to be impartial scientific uh, advice, giving us the best advice that scientists can give us at this moment. That's how we'll know when we have a trustworthy vaccine. And if you take a sort of sweeping overreactive view of, I'm just not going to trust this at all for many, many years, it fails to understand how the CDC works, that it is mostly populated by people who are not public political appointees. It fails to understand the nuances of how we come to trust something and what we do when that trust is challenged. So the corrective to such an overreaction is for us to reapply doubt and source checking. Okay, we discover that one of our usual sources is sometimes wrong, is not being honest with us even. And it is a reminder to us that aberrations are completely to be expected and that we have to adjust and retest, but not overcompensate when our trust is challenged. What all of this does is spell the necessity for practicing knowledge and the testing of knowledge, the testing of what we can trust and the trusting again. It doesn't come out of the blue. It comes out of a history, a shared history and understanding. And what that means is that we come to our understanding of what is the truth of what we can trust at this moment in a community. We don't do it alone. I think it's no, mis no mistake that in, in the, the Vedic and the Wesleyan quadrilateral understanding, half of those are very internal reason and our own experience and perception. The other half are communal, the tradition of scripture, the tradition of expertise and the wisdom of other people. We have to practice this in community. It is a community that, that crowdsources the wisdom that we have and that helps us to test our own perceptions against others. We come out with the necessity for flexibility, not being too changeable with every change in the wind, but being able to recalibrate our understanding of what we can trust as we receive new information. We discover that it's necessary to root ourselves in reason and the company of thinkers who challenge us and offer a respectful venue for dialogue. Because another thing that can happen to us is that we discover that our sources, including ourselves, are biased, are too narrow. For example, that history has been told by the winners. And so what we have been told are facts are just one version of the facts. And the mistake that we make when we learn that is to go to the extreme of complete relativism. The corrective to that 
is to be in conversation, to understand that everybody does have their biases, including us, but that that doesn't mean that everything goes or that everything is equally valid or invalid. I had the great occasion this week to ask a philosopher who is a Unitarian Universalist if he could describe a UU epistemology, a Unitarian Universalist theory of knowledge. What is our understanding of what we can know, what we can trust? How do we know what we know? His name is Adam Late, and he responded, it seems to me that there is a lot of epistemology contained in our UU principles and sources. Here is how I would sum up a UU epistemology, Professor Late said, or at least this is a UU inspired epistemology that I can believe in. See how it matches up for you with my intuition and the teachings of the Vedas, of John Wesley, the teachings of the Buddha, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Number one from Professor Late, trust yourself. At the end of the day, we have no capacity for finding the truth beyond our own capacity for thoughtful judgment. If we cast doubt on that very capacity, then we give up the game entirely. I would quibble with him here, by the way, and say we do need to cast doubt on it, but not total doubt, just a question. Number two, he says, don't require certainty. Good reasons are the best we can ever have, and they are good enough. Three, wear your convictions lightly and be open to changing your views. We always have to be open to the possibility that we are getting things wrong. That is compatible with being convinced for the time being and pending further evidence that we are right. Number four from Professor Late, cast a wide net. Empirical science, reason, personal experience, the world's religions and cultures are all sources of perspectives and information that may prove useful. Five, be a part of community. Test your views in conversation with other people. Listen to and learn from other people's views and responses, but at the end of the day, the responsibility to decide what to believe is yours alone. Six, check your sources. Assess the credibility of our sources of information and don't believe uncritically. Seven, go with what works. If a view actually helps solve problems and improve the world, to that extent, it's better. Eight, don't buy unnecessary trouble. Don't be distracted by what ifs, conspiracy thinking, and possibilities that have no evidence in their favor. Follow the evidence where it leads, unless and until some new evidence comes along. But to worry about things that have absolutely no evidence in their favor is to go down a rabbit hole. And nine, be open to wonder and new, and new questions. A spirit of openness and wonder fosters creative solutions. I'm so grateful for this reflection from a philosopher who spends most of his time thinking about how we can know what we know in the most ultimate senses. As Unitarian Universalists, one of our abiding principles, this congregation 
and mine and Professor Light's, and I'm betting yours too, is that we conduct individually and together a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. The world needs us to do this well, and we don't always. We have our own biases. We are situated in a time, a place, a culture, a demographic of our own. And one of the things that gives me the most hope is that we are questioning that and realizing, oh, we have to bring other voices in, not just the ones that have been dominant in Unitarian Universalism and for Unitarian Universalism until now. But we do not, for all of that, give up on this commitment to freely and responsibly searching for the truth, for what we can trust, what we can trust however provisionally to guide our lives with meaning, with ethics, with kindness, with wisdom. And so without cynicism or arrogance and exercising a healthful doubt and a willingness to dwell in uncertainty, I hope we can be not only practitioners of the search for truth, but leaders of that search that is as important as it ever was, perhaps more important than ever. May we be so.